0: Chapter 5 The Son of God, Protestant loss of Jesus' teaching and his promotion to deity. The Shema comes from the Torah. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9, is the Shema. By the first century, we find evidence that it was the standard practice for Jews to recite the Shema as a form of their prayer life and confessional life, the way many Christians recite the Apostles' Creed from 150 AD or the Lord's Prayer. That's from Scott McKnight's What Jesus Believed. Why is it necessary to improve on the foundational Christian confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the Living God, and thus alter its clear meaning? In order to understand God and Jesus and their relationship, We must begin with this confession. This biblical confession of faith represents the central biblical message. That's from William Clarke, Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's an easy matter to demonstrate that our New Testament writers, some of whom had known Jesus personally and heard him teach day after day in the temple, were committed to the belief that Jesus was the son of God this is the precise claim Jesus made for himself in John 10 verse 36 Quote, I said that I am the son of God it was the accusation of Jesus enemies at his trial that he had claimed to be the son of God John 19 verse 7 this was the worst they could say of him In John 10.36, Jesus is intent on putting the record straight when angry members of the religious establishment charge him with inadmissible claims and what they consider a blasphemous challenge to the authority of God. Jesus had claimed to be a single agent of the one God and to be performing God's will perfectly. He rejected entirely their suggestion that he was somehow replacing God and protested that he was able to do nothing of himself but only what God permitted or ordained. The son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. John 5 verse 19. This reply of Jesus to his accusers is very often omitted from evangelical literature since it would expose as wrong the notion that Jesus was claiming actually to be God. Jesus vigorously rejected the idea that he was God himself. What he did claim was to be blamelessly performing the will of God. There's an equality of function in Jesus' activity. And he spoke the words of God, John 3, verse 34, but far from working out of his own so-called deity, he can do only what he, quote, sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does it in the same way. John 5, verse 19. By no stretch of the imagination does this constitute Jesus, a second uncreated person of the Godhead. It proves him rather to be the perfectly submitted, sinless human being. As C.K. Barrett remarked with humor on John 8, verse 28, quote, It is simply intolerable that Jesus should be made to say, I am God, the supreme God of the Old Testament, and being God, I do as I am told. C.K. Barrett's essays on John. The later Catholic Church, losing touch with the Jewish Jesus of the Scriptures, invented a new identity for Jesus which he would not and could not have accepted. The Son who in Scripture came into being, that is, was begotten, was replaced by an eternal being who was transmuted into a human fetus. And so it remains to this day. The creed of the Church and the creed of Jesus are at odds. In John 10, verses 34 to 36, Jesus answers his accusers by arguing that even the judges of Israel, who were entrusted with God's revelation, were called in Psalm 82, verse 6, gods. That's Elohim in the Hebrew. Why then would it be wrong for him, as the specially appointed promised Messiah of Israel, the ultimate prophet promised by the Hebrew Bible, Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 19, to claim to be the Son of God. John 10, verse 36. How easy it would have been for him to declare unambiguously, I am God, an uncreated second member of a triune Godhead. He says no such thing. Far from claiming to be God, He claims to be God's Son. Son of God. It's a very easy task to demonstrate that within the pages of the Bible, Son of God never means God. The very word Son implies, both in and outside the Bible, origin, derivation, and subordination. Adam is called son of God in Luke 3, verse 38. Adam was not God. Israel, as God's chosen nation, was called God's, quote, son. In Exodus 4, verse 22, and Hosea 11, verse 1. This did not elevate them to the status of deity. They were still members of the human race, Angels, as quote, sons of God, were definitely created beings, Job 1 verse 6 and chapter 38 verse 7. Created persons could, on rare occasions, even be called God. The King of Israel had been called God in Psalm 45 verse 6. The Roman Catholic translation of the Bible, the NAB, very helpfully has. Your throne, O God, with a little g, a lowercase g. Your throne, O God, stands forever. Your royal scepter is a scepter for justice. The notes observe that lowercase god is a courtly royal title describing a human being who represents God. The theological dictionary of the New Testament confirms that in Psalm 45, verse 6, The Elohim undoubtedly refers to a man, that is, the king, and not to Yahweh. The same title, God with little g, was applied in Hebrews 1 verse 8 to Jesus as Messiah. It is well known that in the Bible, the human kings of Israel are meant to reflect the one God who appointed them. No one imagined they were actually the creator God. No Israelite reading his scriptures and eagerly anticipating the promised son to be born as a descendant of david could have remotely supposed that god himself was going to arrive from heaven as a member of the godhead become man in the old testament the one god appointed moses to be god elohim to pharaoh exodus 4 16 and chapter 7, verse 1. What we learn here reveals the marvelous status that God is able, if he wishes, to assign to selected human agents. Adam, indeed, as the beginning of the human creation, was appointed as the son and, quote, image of God, Genesis 1, verse 27. Which in Middle Eastern cultures meant that he was a direct representative of the deity on earth. The distinguished professor of systematic theology at Fuller Theological Seminary states categorically a fact which can be confirmed in a good modern Bible dictionary. To be a son of God, one has to be a being who is not God. It's a designation for a creature indicating a special relationship with God. In particular, it denotes God's representative, God's vice-regent. It's a designation of kingship, identifying the king as God's son. That statement's from Colin Brown in an article, Trinity and Incarnation in Search of Contemporary Orthodoxy. Ex auditu. 7. 1991 Had attention been paid to this rather elementary fact about the term Son of God, centuries of pointless dispute leading to the Trinity could have been avoided. Son of God is the messianic title marking Jesus as the one whom God promised as Son of Abraham, Son of David, and Son of God himself. The confusion created by churches which lift the biblical term Son of God out of its biblical context and redefine it to mean something quite different continues to blight reasonable discussion of the controversial issue about who God and Jesus are. Church members who have not examined these issues of identity carefully are liable to react with alarm the proposition that son of god does not mean god cherished tradition causes an automatic reflex making them equate son of god with the later phrase god the son but in terms of scripture to which protestants say they are committed as sole authority not only does the title god the son not appear. But Son of God describes a creature related in some way to God, but certainly not God himself. The very idea of two who are God should cause churchgoers to shrink in horror from such potential polytheism. But centuries of indoctrination seem to have desensitized them to the awful prospect that the monotheism of Jesus has been violated by their traditions. They have not pondered the troubling problem involved in believing that one who is God, the Son, left his home in heaven, while another who is God, the Father, did not. Does this situation not point to an obvious diatheism, belief in two gods? One who is fully God on earth and another who is fully God in heaven makes two gods. There's a single text in John 1.18, the authenticity of which is disputed by critics. This speaks of an, not the, only begotten God, with lowest case G. John has just said that no one has seen God at any time he then describes the sun as quote, "an only begotten god" if this text is genuine it still does not make the sun the supreme god but as f j a hort said a uniquely begotten sun is the highest form of derivative being that's from hort's two dissertations believing That Jesus is the Son of God, and thus, by biblical definition, not God himself, a proposition which would immediately lead to belief in two gods, since the Father of Jesus was obviously God, was the core of right belief according to Jesus. The New Testament makes a proper understanding of who he is, and was, a crucial issue. Jesus asked this Test question of his chosen executives, the leaders of the church which he founded. In view of various public misunderstandings about who Jesus was, some thought he was Jeremiah or another prophet who had returned to life, Jesus posed the question of questions Quote, Who do you say that I am? The resounding and correct reply came from Peter Quote, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. Matthew 16, verses 15 to 16. Jesus greeted this recognition of him as the Messiah and Son of God with warm enthusiasm. With the assurance that Peter had been given this correct identity of Jesus by a divine revelation, Jesus then promised to found the Christian church on Peter's insight. Jesus is the Messiah, Son of God. Matthew 16, verses 17 to 18. That is what New Testament Christianity is all about. Note that this fact immediately links Christianity to its Jewish roots in the Hebrew Bible. The designation of Jesus as the Christ is repeated hundreds of times in every book of the New Testament except 3 John. Christ is simply our English translation of the Greek word Christos and the Hebrew word Mashiach. The Christ is God's unique son and king. Psalm 2, verse 2, 6 and 7. The heart of the faith is shaken when definitions are produced, which, no doubt in the name of so-called progress, go beyond the core biblical belief that Jesus is the Son and Messiah. As reported in the corroborating accounts of Mark and Luke, Peter said, you are the Christ. Mark 8, verse 29. The Christ of God. Luke 9, verse 20. John records Jesus as being rightly identified as the Holy One of God. John 6, 69. Matthew's addition of the explanatory phrase, Son of the Living God, Matthew 16.16 does not mean that Messiah and Son of God were radically different in meaning. The predicted King of Israel had been called Messiah in the Hebrew Bible. He'd been called also Son of God. Psalm 2 treats as virtual synonyms the titles Messiah, Anointed, Son, and My, that is, God's King. And in John's opening presentation of the key figure of Christian belief, various associates of Jesus recognize him as Son of God, King of Israel, and Lamb of God, the one of whom Moses in the Law and the Prophets were writing. John 1.29, 36, 45, and 49. These are all titles for the same person, they have nothing at all to do with designations of Jesus as later, post-biblical theology, that is, God the Son, or God. For John, King of Israel, and Son of God are synonyms. Nathaniel, the man, quote, without guile, declared of Jesus, quote, You are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. John 1, verse 49. Of Israel, in its ideal future converted state as God's people, the prophet Hosea had written, It will be said to them, You are sons of the living God. Hosea 1, verse 10. Romans 9, verse 26. They were not thus to be deity, but transformed human beings. Jesus is the forerunner of just that ideal. He was recognized by those gifted to know he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew 16, verse 16. The definitive descriptions of Jesus as Son of God and Messiah are found with equal emphasis in the latest of the four Gospels. John. Since it is to the Gospel of John... some appeal for the later definition of jesus as the second member of the trinity those introductory designations of jesus cited above using titles which could not possibly mean he is god are particularly significant equally impressive and to be noted with special care is john's explicit and concluding statement about why he had written his whole gospel these things are written he states that you the reader may believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and that by believing this you may have life in his name john chapter 20 verse 31 since this is exactly the definition of jesus provided much earlier by peter and acclaimed by Jesus as the essential rock foundation of Christian faith, we see that the apostles were in complete harmony about the identity of their rabbi, Lord, with lowercase l, and Savior. Not unreasonably, Christianity is centered in the belief that Jesus was and is the Christ. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born from God. 1 John 5, verse 1. This confession is synonymous with believing that, quote, Jesus is the Son of God. 1 John 5, verse 5. Indeed, quote, He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. 1 John 5, verse 12. This is the impassioned conviction Which pervades apostolic Christianity, forming its backbone and substructure. To require of church members a belief that, quote, Jesus is God, is to demand allegiance to a Jesus not known to the pages of the New Testament. It is alien to John's writings to maintain that believing in the Christ, or the Son, means that one holds the view that Jesus is fully God and fully man. To say, quote, I believe that Jesus is Christ and I believe he is God, is to give with one hand and take back with the other. A disturbing self-contradiction. We see then that there's been no evolution or change within the canon of the New Testament in the basic identity of Christianity's founder. Peter, in conversation with Jesus in the 30s AD, provides the creedal statement about Jesus as Messiah, Son of God. And John, writing probably in the 90s, makes the same identity of Jesus the whole point of his gospel writing. This should put an end to any theories of, quote, progress within the New Testament period. It is not seldom claimed That is only when we come to John that we find Jesus elevated as a member of the Godhead. This is patently not so, since everything John included in his gospel was to demonstrate the Messiahship and Sonship of Jesus. John 20, verse 31. Neither of these titles, provided we stay within their New Testament meaning, provides evidence that he is God. If, on the other hand, we approach the New Testament doctrines armed with the concept that Jesus is Almighty God, we may be able to justify the traditional view from a very few texts, but only at the cost of ignoring the thousands of singular verbs and nouns, notably the personal name of God, Yahweh, and singular personal pronouns which in the biblical languages, as in English, denote a single person. The Hebrew Bible speaks of a person as a nefesh, or living soul. This is equivalent to an individual. Even God himself is said to be a person or soul, and he speaks of himself, or his own person, as my soul in Isaiah 42, verse 1, and Leviticus 26, verse 11. He's a single individual or soul, the Father and the one God, Malachi 2.10. For nephesh as self, or person, of man, or individual, see Brown, Driver, and Briggs Lexicon, page 659 and 660. The triune God contradicts the plain unitarian creedal statement of Jesus and the apostles Mark twelve twenty nine, John seventeen three, and 1 Corinthians eight four to six and 1 Timothy two verse five. The Messianic title Son of God is distorted when it is turned into God the Son The concept of an eternal, quote, God the Son, demolishes the birth narratives of Matthew and Luke, which do not describe the arrival of a divine being from another realm, but the begetting of a baby in Mary. This is conception and begetting, not transmutation or transformation or capital incarnation, which is a concept completely. At variance with Matthew's and Luke's meticulously detailed account of the genealogical pedigree of Jesus as the son of David and Abraham, Matthew 1, verse 1, indeed of Adam himself, Luke 3, 38. If Scripture is a revelation at all, it speaks to us in intelligible language using established rules of grammar. And syntax. It is sometimes said that the descriptions of God, because he is God and not man, must go beyond reason and logic. Foggy assertions are frequently advanced to the effect that language is inadequate to describe God. This allows for a waffly retreat into so-called mystery. An argument which tries to skirt The ordinary meaning of personal pronouns is invalid once we accept Scripture as verbal revelation. The human language by which God has chosen to disclose what He desires to be known of Him, and of course there is much He has not revealed, is entirely adequate to the job. God describes Himself as a single, undivided, divine personality. He describes his unique son, Jesus, as a distinct person. Person is to be understood according to the normal rules of grammar and language. Jews, as custodians of Scripture, have known this for the totality of their history. Hence their horror at any tampering with their creed which is so repeatedly and explicitly Unitarian that is, describing God as a single person. For Christians, there remains the inescapable fact that Jesus is reported as endorsing the Jewish unitary monotheistic creed of his own biblical heritage. Unless Jesus is to be disallowed as the arbiter of what the true creed is, Christians should feel themselves duty-bound as Jesus' disciples, to follow their Master. At present, we are faced with a bizarre situation. Churchgoers gather under the umbrella of a creedal statement unknown to Jesus. The words of the Father that Jesus is, quote, my son, and that we are to, quote, hear him, Luke 9.35, appear to allow no other view of the creed than the one announced by Jesus himself as the most important of all theological considerations. Mark 12.29 Mark's inclusion of Jesus' interchange with a Jewish scribe over the truly orthodox creed roots the Christian creed in the creed of Israel as far as defining God is concerned. There can be no mistaking the fact that Jesus' creed, and therefore the creed of Christianity, must be the ancient and hallowed creed of Scripture and of Israel. The creed recited by Jesus is not the property of Israel alone. On the contrary, it becomes, via Jesus, the property of all who profess belief and allegiance to the one whom we believe to be the promised Messiah. It seems to me that the reader of Mark 12 is invited to bring his intelligent understanding to bear on the savior's words and to question how closely jesus has been followed by traditional christianity in this respect if jesus god and his service of that one god are embedded in judaism ought not christians to be following suit This is not to say that the New Testament requires those under the New Covenant to adopt a Jewish calendar or food laws. Acts 15, the First Church Council, and later Paul in Romans 14, verses 14 and 20, and the Book of Galatians deal expressly with this issue. But there's no suggestion ever in the New Testament that the definition of God has been altered. The amazing capacity of the Jew to survive seems not to be true of their monotheistic creed when it was passed from the hands of Jesus' chosen Jewish apostles into the hands of second-century Gentiles, who apparently thought that the creed of their claimed Savior needed, quote, upgrading this fatal development has caused Jews of all generations to discount the claims of the professed followers of Jesus. They rejected them out of hand for the very reason that the Trinitarian Creed was something their own scriptures had forbidden them to embrace. This could turn out to be one of history's great ironies. The spiritual and intellectual heritage of the Jews, undergirded by their pure monotheism, should have passed into the Christian Church unchanged. Jesus could have been claimed as the greatest proponent of such a transfer of creed to the whole world. Israel's and Jesus' God could have been proclaimed worldwide, but this has not happened. The Church betrayed her Master at a most fundamental level. This was made possible by Protestant neglect Of Jesus as their teacher and rabbi a double tragedy occurred the Christians disregarded the Unitarian Creed of Jesus and Jews were strengthened in their refusal of the Messiah because Christians misinterpreted Jesus in the matter of Creed nowhere was Jesus more clearly the Jewish teacher of salvation than in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It was these books which enshrined Jesus' own declaration about the true God. These records of the Jewish Jesus, however, lost their primary and central place in Protestant theology. How this happened is not difficult to investigate. Luther and Antisemitism A contemporary British scholar reminds us that One of the lies, so-called, of which Luther accused the Jews, is that they claimed that Christians believe in more than one God. Thus, the Jewish perception that the doctrine of the Trinity is not monotheistic was put forward as a reason for condemning the Jewish people. Luther's recommendations included burning down the synagogues, or schools of the Jews, destroying their houses, confiscating all copies of their prayer books, and forbidding their rabbis to teach on pain of death. You'll find that fact in Morris Casey's From Jewish Prophet to Gentile God. Morris Casey alerts us to the fact that with these recommendations, the architect of the Reformation, Luther, erected a signpost to the Holocaust. He is often thought to have provided the key to understanding St. Paul, but in Paul, the cross is to be borne, not inflicted. The violent approach to those who did not accept, quote, orthodoxy should provide a warning signal that all was not well with, quote, orthodoxy. Instead of a loving appeal to Jews and to Christian so-called dissenters, the mainstream of traditional Christianity threatened them with death for their non-conformity to dogma. The faith, as modeled by Jesus, was thus turned on its head. Jesus had warned that misguided religious opponents were the ones most likely to be dangerous to the Christian's life, John 16, verse 2. The root of Luther's problem, as with much evangelicalism today, was that he was selective in his use of the New Testament. His selectivity gave preference to the letters of Paul over the synoptic records of Jesus' own teaching, but the Jewish Jesus is most clearly presented in precisely those books which Luther tended to disregard. Not widely recognized by Protestants is Luther's prescription for elevating certain portions of the New Testament over others, ensuring thus that we do not look too closely at the teaching of Jesus. That teaching was, of course, for Paul, fundamental, 1 Timothy 6, verse 3, the Protestant tendency, however, with its heavy emphasis on Romans as the heart of the gospel, has been to twist Paul and reject Jesus. The New Testament presents Jesus, not Paul, as the author of the gospel of salvation. Mark 1, verses 1, 14 and 15. Hebrews 2, 3. 1 Timothy 6, 3. And 2 John seven to nine and jesus throughout his ministry appealed to all who heard him teach never to forget that his words provided the only basis for the knowledge of god and his plan of salvation luther versus the canon of the bible luther's principle of selection in the use of scripture has called forth some strong criticism martin luther in accord with his posture of supreme self-importance as restorer of christianity even presumed inconsistently to judge various books of the bible god's holy word luther feels himself entirely able and duty-bound as a lone individual to judge the canonicity and even overall value of Old Testament and New Testament books which had been securely in the canon for over 1100 years. Most of these sentiments, especially concerning the New Testament, can be found in Luther's prefaces to various books of the Bible. Scanning some of those in one primary source produced by the United Lutheran Church in America. I see that Luther rejects the apostolicity of Hebrews, James, Jude, and Revelation. Although he does say they are, quote, fine books. Yet of James, Luther states that it is, quote, flatly against St. Paul and all the rest of Scripture. Logical consistency was not one of Luther's better qualities needless to say. If a book in the Bible contradicts another, then it is clearly not God-breathed, as God cannot contradict himself or be in error about anything. Hence, not inspired, and therefore not part of Scripture at all. And that is basically Luther's conclusion, although the overwhelming weight of tradition pertaining to the biblical canon required him To retain these books in the bible albeit separately as a sort of new testament apocrypha luther clearly had little patience with the book of revelation in his preface to revelation from 1522 from the time period in which he was translating the bible he states with amazing boldness quotation i miss more than one thing in this book the book of revelation And this makes me hold it to be neither apostolic nor prophetic. I think of it almost as I do of the fourth book of Esdras, and can in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. It is just the same as if we did not have it, and there are many far better books for us to keep. Finally, let everyone think of the book of Revelation as his own Spirit gives him my spirit said luther cannot fit itself into this book there is one sufficient reason for me not to think highly of it christ is not taught or known in it but to teach christ is the thing which an apostle is bound above all else to do as he says in act one you shall be my witnesses therefore i stick to the book's which give me Christ clearly and purely. That's from the works of Martin Luther, translated by C.M. Jacobs. Of special interest and relevance is Luther's preface to the New Testament in 1522 and revised in 1545, where he says some astonishing things, including the famous Epistle of Straw remark. After expounding generally for a few pages, the alleged restorer of the gospel, concludes that this evaluation of John's gospel as compared with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Quote from Luther. From all this, you can now judge all the books and decide among them which are the best. John's gospel is the one tender, true chief gospel, far, far to be preferred to the other three and placed high above them. So too, the epistles of St. Paul and St. Peter far surpass the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In a word, St. John's Gospel and his first epistle, St. Paul's epistle, especially Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians, and St. Peter's first epistle are the books that show you Christ and teach you all that's necessary and good for you to know even though you were never to see or hear any other book or doctrine. Therefore, St. James' epistle is really an epistle of straw compared to them, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. End of quotation. We see the legacy of this tendency to emphasize certain New Testament books to the neglect of others in Protestantism to this day. It was clear that St. Paul's writings, especially Romans, and John's Gospel were the favorites, and the books Luther liked less are too often neglected, especially Hebrews and James. Revelation is popular in some circles, particularly the Dispensationalists. Dave Armstrong. Gave us those words in an article, Luther versus the Canon of the Bible. We should add that Revelation has become the victim of a pre-tribulation rapture system, which contradicts the plain words of Jesus that he will gather the elect post-tribulation. I quote from Jesus, immediately after the tribulation of those days, he will gather his elect. See Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31. Paul likewise would have no patience with modern innovative theories of a pre-tribulation rapture stroke resurrection. He obviously expected Christians to have to endure tribulation until the coming of Jesus' invisible power and glory to raise the faithful dead. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. Luther biographer Hartmann Grisar, S.J., Society of Jesus, author of a massive six-volume biography, writes, Luther's criticism of the Bible proceeds along entirely subjective and arbitrary lines. The value of the sacred writings is measured by the rule of Luther's own doctrine, He treats the venerable canon of Scripture with a liberty which annihilates all certitude. For while this list has the highest guarantee of sacred tradition and the backing of the Church, Luther makes religious sentiment the criterion by which to decide which books belong in the Bible, which are doubtful and which are to be excluded. At the same time, he practically abandons the concept of inspiration, for he says nothing of a special illuminative activity of God in connection with the writer's composition of the sacred book, notwithstanding that he holds the Bible to be the Word of God because its authors were sent by God. Thus, his attitude towards the Bible is really burdened with, quote, flagrant contradictions to use an expression of harnack especially since he had quote broken through the external authority of the written word by his critical method and of this luther is guilty the very man who elsewhere represents the bible as the sole principle of faith if in addition to this his arbitrary method of interpretation is taken into consideration the work of destruction wrought by him appears even greater the only weapon he possessed he wrested from his own hand as it were both theoretically and in practice his procedure regarding the sacred writings is apt to make thoughtful minds realize how great is the necessity of an infallible church as divinely appointed guardian and authentic interpreter of the bible that is from martin luther his life and work an infallible church however i add is an impossible solution what we do have is inspired scripture as the basis of the faith as originally taught jude verse 3 From a Protestant point of view also, Luther does not escape criticism in regard to his, quote, canon within the canon. The Hastings Dictionary of the Bible observed, With Luther, the Reformation was based on justification by faith. This truth Luther held to be confirmed, a. by its necessity, nothing else availing, and b. by its effects, since in practice it brought peace, assurance, and the new life. Then these scriptures, which manifestly supported the fundamental principle, were held to be ipso facto inspired, and the measure of their support of it determined the degree of their authority. Thus the doctrine of justification by faith is not accepted because it's found in the Bible, but the Bible is accepted because it contains this doctrine. Moreover, the Bible is sorted and arranged in grades by Luther, according as it does so more or less clearly. And to Luther there is, quote, a New Testament within the New Testament, a kernel of all Scripture, consisting of those books which he sees most clearly set forth the Gospel. Thus he wrote, quote, John's Gospel, the Epistles of Paul, and especially Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, and 1 Peter, are the books which show thee Christ and teach all that's needful and blessed for thee to know, even if you never see or hear any other book or any other doctrine. therefore, Is the epistle of James a mere epistle of straw, a recht epistle, since it has no character of the gospel in it? That's from Luther's preface to the New Testament, 1522. The passage was omitted from later editions. Luther places Hebrews, James, Jude, and the apocalypse at the end of his translation, after the other New Testament books, which he designates, quote, the true and certain capital books of the New Testament, for these have been regarded in former times in a different light. As from Hastings' Dictionary of the Bible. Luther at first, in his preface in translation of the New Testament in 1522, expressed a strong aversion to the book of Revelation declaring that to him it had every mark of being neither apostolic nor prophetic. He cannot see that it was the work of the Holy Spirit. Moreover, he does not like the commands and threats which the writer makes about his book in Revelation 22, verse 18 and 19, and the promise of blessedness to those who keep what is written in the book of Revelation. Revelation 1.3, 22, verse 7, when, as Luther says, no one knows what that is, to say nothing of keeping it, and there are many nobler books, says Luther, to be kept. Moreover, many fathers rejected the book. Then Luther said, finally, everyone thinks of the book of Revelation, whatever his spirit imparts. My spirit cannot adapt itself to the book. And a sufficient reason why I do not esteem it highly is that Christ is neither taught nor recognized in it, which is what an apostle ought before all things to do. Later, in 1534, Luther finds a possibility of Christian usefulness in it. He still thought it a hidden, dumb prophecy unless interpreted, and upon the interpretation no certainty had been reached after many efforts. He remained doubtful about its apostolicity and in 1545 printed the book of Revelation with Hebrews James Jude as an appendix to his New Testament, not numbered in the index. Zwingli, a leading reformer, regarded Revelation as, quote, not a biblical book. And even Calvin, with his high view of inspiration, does not comment on 2nd and 3rd John and Revelation. All that's from the Hastings Dictionary of the Bible. Calvin showed a curious unease with the historical records of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He even ventured to suggest a different order for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, making John the gospel of first choice and an introduction to the other three. The doctrine which points out to us the power and benefit of the coming of Christ is far more clearly exhibited by John than by the rest. The three exhibit Christ's body, but John exhibits his soul. On this account, I'm accustomed to say that this Gospel of John is a key to open the door for understanding the rest. In reading the four Gospels, a different order would be more advantageous, which is that when we wish to read in Matthew and the others that Christ was given to us by the Father, we should first learn from John the purpose for which he was manifested. One might well ask why Luke's answer to the question of Jesus' purpose was not adequate. I came to preach the kingdom of God gospel. That is the reason for which I was sent. Luke 4, verse 43. But Calvin was horrified at the question asked by the disciples after they had been thoroughly schooled in the gospel of the kingdom for three years and another six weeks. Act one, Three. Is it now time for you to restore the sovereignty or kingdom to Israel? Act one, Six? From Calvin's non-messianic point of view, this was entirely the wrong question. Quote, There are as many errors in this question as words, Calvin wrote in his commentary. On the Acts of the Apostles, Jesus did not think so. However, at all, he merely told the disciples that the time for the arrival of that messianic kingdom on earth was not to be revealed. Act one, verse seven. Readers should reflect on the remarkable fact that churches have continued to place considerable faith in the spiritual leadership of Calvin and Luther, despite the former's hesitancy about the apocalypse. Calvin wrote no commentary on Revelation and the latter's apparent failure to heed the warnings of Jesus given in the Revelation. I quote, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book of Revelation. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues written in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy, God will take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. Blessed is he who keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book blessed is he who reads and they who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things which are written in it for the time is at hand revelation 1 verse 3. this hardly sounds as if the book could be safely relegated to an appendix the book of revelation appears in scripture as a message directly from Christ to the churches. It is every bit as authoritative as the teaching of Jesus prior to his death. Jesus has certainly not altered his belief in the one God of Israel, affirmed during his ministry on earth. Who will not fear and glorify your name, O Lord, for you alone are holy? Revelation 15, verse 4. This is the purest Jewish Christian monotheism unaffected by the exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of God. Yet Luther was blind enough not to heed the powerful warnings from Jesus that his words in the Revelation are of supreme value. In Revelation, as is well recognized, Jesus draws together the strands of Old Testament prophecy. It contains hundreds of allusions to and quotations from the Hebrew Bible and describes the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth at the second coming. It is the fitting climax to the expectations of both Old and New Testament. Depicting the triumph of the kingdom of God to be established by the returning Messiah on a renewed earth over a hostile world. This unfortunate tendency of Protestants not always to take seriously the teaching of Jesus as the basis of faith is almost universal in evangelical circles. Christians often imagine, contrary to the repeated warnings of Jesus, that the faith somehow began with Paul and that Jesus may be safely relegated to some sort of pre-Christian status, this unfortunate widespread tendency is reflected in the following quotation from D. James Kennedy. I quote, Many people today think that the essence of Christianity is Jesus' teachings, But that is not so. If you read the Apostle Paul's letters, which make up most of the New Testament, you will see that there's almost nothing said about the teachings of Jesus. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, there's little reference to the teachings of Jesus. And in the Apostles' Creed, the most universally held Christian creed, there's no reference to Jesus' teachings. There's also no reference to the example of Jesus. Only two days in the life of Jesus are mentioned, the day of his birth and the day of his death. Christianity centers not in the teachings of Jesus, but in the person of Jesus as incarnate God who came into the world to take upon himself our guilt and die in our place. That's from D.J. Kennedy. How I Know Jesus Is God, Truths That Transform. Paul, in fact, was a follower of Jesus, and thus of the teaching of Jesus. Paul followed the Great Commission and preached the kingdom of God as the heart of the gospel. Acts nineteen eight. Acts 20, verses 24 to 25, and Acts 28. Verses 23 to 31, Dr. Kennedy reflects the tendency which causes churchgoers to lose their roots in Jesus, the rabbi and savior, whose passion for the one God of Jewish monotheism is never in doubt. And who constantly insisted on the absolute necessity of hearing and following Jesus' words and teachings Jesus as the source of the New Testament writings Jesus promised to communicate everything necessary through his agents John 14:26 and 16:13 Paul recognized this important fact I quote we have used the very words given us by the holy spirit 1 Corinthians 2 verse 13 in the New Testament prophets are subject to apostles first 1 Corinthians 1429 and 30 and Ephesians 4:11. When in the Protestant Reformation all things were being re-examined, some of the reformers sought means of reassuring themselves and their followers about the canon of Scripture. This was in some ways an unfortunate aspect of Reformation thinking, because once God in his providence had determined for his people the fixed content of Scripture, that became a fact of history and was not a repeatable process. Nevertheless, Luther established a theological test For the books of the Bible and questioned some of them. Do they teach Christ, he asked. Luther said the book of Revelation did not. Equally subjective, it would seem, was Calvin's insistence that the Spirit of God bears witness to each individual Christian in an age of church history as to what is his word and what is not. The tests of canonicity proposed by both Luther and Calvin are improper. That's a quotation from F.F. Bruce's book, The Origin of the Bible. The selective process of the reformers tended to put the teaching of Jesus into the background. One of many results of this tendency was the loss of Jesus' own Jewish definition of God as a single individual. There is evidence that all the Gospels and Paul's letters were being used within 30 years of the death of John. Clement of Rome, 95 AD, shows knowledge of many New Testament books. Jesus puts his stamp of authority on the canonization of the New Testament by promising that the Spirit will remind them of everything. There is therefore no justification at all for selecting some books and playing others down. The fact that the books were not officially canonized before the fourth century does not mean that they were not recognized as apostolic from the start. Just as Sunday, was observed as a memorial of the resurrection early, and yet legislated formally later by Constantine. Paul speaks of his words as commandments of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4.2 Paul is taken as scripture by Peter. 2 Peter 3.16 1 Timothy 5.18 quotes Deuteronomy twenty five four about not muzzling the ox as scripture, and combines it with Luke 10, verse 7. Thus, there is an equivalence of authority in both Old and New Testaments. The New Testament was written within a period of 50 years. Peter speaks of the prophets as holy, 2 Peter 3, verse 2, and of Jesus giving commands through his apostles. The apostles are also, quote, holy apostles, according to Ephesians 3 verse 5. Moving Jesus back into the Old Testament and losing him. A whole new approach to the Bible is evident early in the second century AD. It was a departure from the viewpoint of the New Testament The Son of God has mysteriously become an active figure in Old Testament history, appearing as the angel who wrestled with Jacob. The bedrock teaching of Jesus about the one God and himself as the Son of God and Son of David underwent a radical change. F.F. Bruce writes as follows, with the coming of Christ, and the new understanding of the New Testament scriptures as bearing witness to him, a new dimension of biblical understanding was opened up. But the Christian interpretation of the Old Testament in the New Testament is restrained and disciplined by contrast with what we find in the post-apostolic period. There's no reference to wrestling Jacob, in the New Testament, nor yet in the Apostolic Fathers. But Justin Martyr, 150 AD, in his dialogue with Trifo, asserts confidently that the mysterious wrestler, whom the narrator describes as a man, and of whom Jacob speaks of as God, must be the one whom Christians acknowledged as God and man. Trifo, a Jew, is increasingly bewildered as he listens to the flow of Justin's argument. Such application, he says, of sacred scripture is entirely foreign to him, and he cannot understand how anyone can understand it in such a sense as Justin expounds. But to Justin Martyr, this understanding of the incident is all of a piece with his understanding of other Old Testament incidents in which God or his angel appears or speaks to human beings in the form of a man. The Christological exposition of such incidents is hardly attested, if at all, in the New Testament documents. But it is a well-established tradition by Justin's time for Justin can scarcely be supposed to have initiated it. Once established, the tradition was actively maintained. That was from F.F. Bruce's book, The Canon of Scripture. Charles Wesley, likewise, moved far beyond the terms of Scripture when he wrote, And when my all of strength shall fail, I shall with the God-man prevail. What we witness in the mid-2nd century is a clear departure from the New Testament. This falling away from apostolic faith led to a new doctrine of God and his Son. George Purvis sensed the startling difference between Christianity during and very soon after New Testament times from George Purvis. In post-apostolic literature, the New Testament doctrines are often reproduced in a fragmentary way. They are mixed with other ideas foreign to apostolic Christianity. The latter is unintentionally distorted and misrepresented. The points of view from which the New Testament authors presented their religion had been it would appear, frequently lost by their successors, so that the apostolic phrases were not seldom repeated with changed meanings, as from George Purvis's article, The Influence of Paganism on Post Apostolic Christianity. The Bible's messianic story. The concept that the Son of God was already active in Old Testament times disturbed the promised program of salvation laid out in the Bible. Stephen did not imagine that the angel of the Lord was Jesus himself. See Acts 7, verses 35 and 38. As history proceeded, The God of Israel continued to confirm in Abraham and David and the prophets his ancient promise that the, seed of Eve would arrive as savior of mankind, Genesis 3.15. The story unfolds as the eager expectation that a son will be born in Israel Isaiah 9, 6, and a prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 19, will originate from among the people of Israel. The program is severely disrupted by the completely different idea that a second member of a triune God, about whom Israel knew nothing, would descend from heaven And be transmuted into a human fetus. But we find this counter-story well-developed as early as the writings of Justin Martyr in 150 AD. Even earlier, some of the letters of Ignatius refer to Jesus as, quote, our God. With this the blurring of the clear unitary monotheism of the New Testament is underway. The Son of God's genealogy is to be traced to Judah and to Abraham, but the so called orthodox system traces the origin of the Son beyond those designated ancestors. The Messiah is thus traced off the biblical map and made into an essentially non human person, no longer traced the line of David. To qualify as Messiah, the Son of God must in fact be rooted in the genealogy of David and the history of Israel. The whole point of the biblical story is that the Son of God has to be a biological descendant of Eve, Abraham and David. He must be truly a Jew by lineage. He must stem from the line of David. He must be an Israelite, as the, quote, prophet like Moses. If suddenly a brand new non-human personage from heaven is inserted into the storyline, the whole of the divine plan is derailed, confused, and vastly complicated. The promise of the saviour's continuous lineage from Abraham and David then becomes impossible. The saviour is no longer essentially human. Instead of talking about him, the promised Messiah, the church altered the scheme to speak about his humanity in very abstract terms. The Messiah of Israel and the world has been replaced by a strange being arriving from another world. From this unmessianic Messiah, the Church needs to retreat and rediscover its Jewish messianic roots. The Church should once again confess its true roots in the creed of Jesus and Israel. It should abandon the bizarre opinion of Augustine that Jesus, at his arrival from a supposed pre-existence, took, and I quote, to him what he was not. That's from Augustine's tractates on the Gospel of John. Paul warned about the danger of zeal without knowledge. Romans 10 verse 2. He was keen to affirm that his colleague Jews were zealous for God, but it was an uninformed enthusiasm. Paul's aim was to save them from their misguided religion. What they needed was knowledge. A good grasp of Jesus and his kingdom of God gospel was the solution, because John reported that, quote, the Son of God came to give us an understanding that we might know God. 1 John 5, verse 20. This was an echo of the ancient prophecy of Isaiah 53, verse 11, and this text gets almost no mention in evangelical preaching, that the Messiah would, quote, make many righteous by his knowledge. It has been very unfairly equipped that Jesus could have benefited from a course in friendship evangelism. In fact, Jesus was the deliberate friend of tax gatherers and the non-religious. There is today a large number of, quote, unchurched seekers after God, for whom a return to the creed of Jesus would be a welcome relief from what is perceived by many as a mystification of God, that he is three in one. The Bible is vastly more readable and cogent when read through the spectacles of its Hebrew authors and atmosphere and its strongly Unitarian view of God. The one and only exclusive God of the Jews and of Jesus still remains as the untried rallying point for a simpler Christianity with a worldwide appeal. The Jews worshipped an invisible God, and because Yahweh never dies, he did not need to be resurrected. Even some Jews, however, fell under the spell of Greek philosophy, despite warning from the rabbis who repeated the appeals of the Prophets of Israel. The question is a reasonable one. Did the Church commit suicide by surrendering its monotheism to the culture? There is validity in the challenge of Dr. Norman Snaith, who warns that, quote, neither Catholic nor Protestant theology is based on biblical theology. In each case, we have a domination of Christian thought by Greek thought. Pagan ideas have largely dominated Christian thought. That's from Dr. Norman Snaith's book, Distinctive Ideas of the Old Testament. Canon Googe was also right to warn us that, quote, the Greek mind and the Roman mind, in turn, Instead of the Hebrew mind came to dominate the church's outlook. From that disaster, the church has never recovered either in doctrine or in practice. That's from Canon Guji's book, The Calling of the Jews. One indication of that loss of original truth, Can be traced to unfair translation, promoting Jesus to the trinitarian status of God. Our standard translations of the scriptures are geared to perpetuating the myth that what we teach as doctrine is readily found within the pages of the Bible. This illusion is fostered by a number of subtle distortions in translation. One blatant example is the use of the word, quote, worship to create the impression in readers' minds that Jesus must be God because worship is offered to him. Jesus, however, never demanded worship as God. Worship. Jason Badun, in his Truth in Translation, reminds us of an elementary biblical fact. I quote, in the Jewish tradition, the Messiah is merely a chosen human being. There is no suggestion that he is a divine being. That's from Badoun's book, Truth in Translation. The word divine is used in different ways in our time. Jesus was certainly divine In the sense that he was sinless, virginally conceived, and reflected the mind and character of his father uniquely. But he was not deity, co equal with two other members of a triune God. Jesus, of course, is not, quote, just a man, but the unique, virginally begotten, sinless Son of God, the only member of the human race. To achieve his destiny as an immortal man now sitting next to God in heaven. Another scholar is among many who fully know that the later disputes over the identity of Jesus are far removed from the concerns of Jesus and the apostles. Titles provide one way of speaking about Jesus' identity. Another way is to speak of his being. Was Jesus God? Was he human, was he both? The Church followed this way as it struggled with doctrinal controversies, especially in the 4th and 5th centuries, culminating in the Nicene Creed and the definition of Chalcedon. That concern belonged neither to Jesus nor to the authors of the New Testament, not even to John. That's a quotation from David Kaler's Jesus the prophet, his vision of the kingdom on earth. A powerful propaganda in favor of, quote, orthodoxy has invaded our standard translations of scripture. The public has been miseducated into believing that if someone is, quote, worshipped in the Bible, they must be deity. This is not so. As many examples from the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament demonstrate, Jesus predicts that the day is coming when his followers, who are certainly not God, will be, quote, worshipped. Revelation 3 verse 9. We all recognize that Nebuchadnezzar did not think that Daniel was God himself. Nebuchadnezzar was in fact, quote, doing homage to the prophet. Daniel 2.46. The King James Version says that the king worshipped Daniel. We all know that David, the king, was not God. Nevertheless, David was, quote, worshipped alongside God. The King James Version tells us in 1 Chronicles 29 verse 20 that all the congregation worshipped the Lord and the king, especially appointed representative of the one God, is worthy of worship or obeisance, but that does not mean that he is God. The New Testament recognizes Jesus as a, quote, teacher come from God, John 3, verse two. A man approved by God by miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him, Acts 2, 22. Jesus is the man whom God has appointed to administer the world in righteousness, Acts 17.31. John's Gospel contains a single instance reporting the, quote, worship of Jesus. The blind man worshipped him in John 9.38. As far back as 18.37, a member of the clergy, Charles Morgridge, was making the point that, quote, there is nothing but the mere sound of the English word worship, that favors the idea that Jesus was worshipped as God. Had the translators of the King James Version rendered Matthew eight two as "did him obeisance," there would be nothing to favor the belief that supreme adoration was intended. That's from Charles Morgridge, the True Believer's Defense Against Charges Preferred for Not Believing in the Deity of Christ. Morgridge observes that even in his day, Archbishop Newcomb had correctly rendered worship in Matthew 8, 2, as, quote, did him obeisance. Morgridge makes the excellent point that the association of Jesus with God as the object of praise should not lead to the conclusion that Jesus is God. In Exodus 14, verse 31, the people feared the Lord. And believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Similarly, in first Samuel twelve, eighteen, quote, all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Second Chronicles thirty one verse eight. And when Hezekiah and the princes came and saw the heaps, they blessed the Lord and his people Israel. In the New Testament the close association of God and his agents does not mean that the agent is God himself. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit, that's God in his operational presence and power, and to us. Acts 15.28 You are witnesses and God also. 1 Thessalonians 2.10 This reflects the Old Testament passage in which David says to Abigail, who worshipped David as king, 1 Samuel 25, verse 23, Quote, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me, and blessed be your advice, and blessed be you. First Samuel twenty five, verses thirty-two to thirty-three. In the book of Acts, Cornelius was so impressed with the status of the apostle Peter that he quote fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Acts ten, verse twenty-five. Cornelius did not confuse Peter with God. Cornelius certainly did not intend a gesture of divine service to Peter. Peter pointed out merely that as a human being he expected no such reverential behavior. Jesus recognized that there are situations in which honor paid by one person to another is not inappropriate. In one of his parables, the wise guest is told to sit down in the lowest seat, and when the one who invited you comes, he will say, Friend, go up higher. Then, Jesus said, you will have worship in the presence of those eating with you. Luke 14, verse 10. This does not mean that the one, quote, going up higher would be honored as God. Jesus, in another parable, recognized that a servant might, quote, fall down and worship a human master, Matthew 18, verse 26. I've taken these quotations from the King James Version to illustrate the fact that, quote, worship in 1611 was the appropriate word both for reverence for God and in another sense, homage due to superior human beings. Modern translations recognizing That we no longer use the word worship for human superiors, have often replaced the word worship, proskineo in Greek, with phrases like to do obeisance or to do homage to. But what policy are they to adopt when worship is directed to Jesus? Clearly they have a choice. If they want you to believe that Jesus is God, then the appropriate word to put before you, as a modern English speaker, is worship. Knowing that worship, as we use the word today, is due only to God, you will draw the false conclusion desired by the Orthodox translators that Jesus must be God, because the Bible says he is worshipped, and we know that only God is to be worshipped. However, the translators have forced this impression on you and misled you. They have not allowed you to know that proskineo in Greek is a, quote, flexible word with a range of meaning describing acts of deference offered to persons of different rank, including, of course, God, who is the highest personage of all. Translators of the modern Bibles read by the public bring their theological bias to the task of translation. They create a false impression about who Jesus is by having him, quote, worshiped as Messiah and King. He was and is certainly to be honored in the highest sense, short of making him completely equal with the one God. When the wise men bowed before the newly born Messiah, most modern versions tell you that they, quote, worshipped the baby, Matthew 2.11. This would encourage belief in the deity of Jesus as second member of the eternal trinity. The Roman Catholic translation, the New American Bible, NAB, and the New Revised Standard Version, NRSV, are distinguished for their fair treatment of the text in the passage involving the Magi. They report that the wise men prostrated themselves before Jesus and did him homage or, quote, paid him homage, Matthew 2, verse 11. They do not try to tell us that the Persian astronomers from the East believed they had come to visit, quote, the baby God. Their joy was to have discovered the Messiah of Israel. The two versions which sense the correct modern sense of, quote, worship as meaning, quote, to do homage to, acknowledge that the word worship applied to Jesus does not in itself demonstrate his deity. A contemporary scholar who examined this issue carefully in various translations warns Bible readers. He points out that, Translators' biases lead them to restrict what they will allow the reader to be able to consider. The Reformation fought for the access of all believers to the Bible and the right of the individual to directly encounter and interpret the text. Modern translators undermine that cause when they publish interpretations rather than translations still trying to direct readers to the understanding acceptable to the beliefs and biases of the translators themselves. That's from Badoon's book, Truth in Translation, Accuracy and Bias in English Translations of the New Testament. Arthur Wainwright's highly respected study of the Trinity in the New Testament concludes, after a thorough investigation, that the use of the word, quote, worship of Christ does not lead us to conclude that he was worshipped as God. I quote, The examples of proskinin to worship, which have been discussed, do not greatly strengthen the evidence for the worship in the sense of worshipping deity of Christ. The ambiguity of the word proskinin which can be used of oriental obeisance as well as actual worship of deity, makes it impossible to draw certain conclusions from the evidence. That's from the book, The Trinity in the New Testament. This has not prevented scores of writers from overlooking these language facts. Wainwright also finds not one example worship offered to the Holy Spirit. This is because in the New Testament the Spirit is never regarded as a third divine person. The Spirit is the operational power and presence of God. No one in the Bible ever prayed to the Holy Spirit or praised the Holy Spirit. The strange appeal, come Holy Spirit, heard in charismatic quarters today, as though the Spirit is a third member of the Godhead, is utterly alien to Scripture. Typical of a disregard for the meaning of the biblical words for, quote, worship is the statement of Peter Thun in his book, Our Triune God. The first Christians, apostles and disciples, were thoroughly committed to the living God, to his unity and his uniqueness. Yet very quickly, and without losing their passionate commitment to the unity of Yahweh, they began to speak of and worship the resurrected, ascended, and glorified Lord Jesus Christ in such a way as to confess that he is divine as is the Father. As from Peter Toon's book, Our Triune God. He makes this statement while paradoxically admitting that the confession of the Hebrew Bible in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 is accepted and confirmed by Jesus. Mark 12, 29, Matthew 22, verse 37, and Luke 10, verse 26, and by his apostles. Romans 3:30, 1 Corinthians 8, 4, Galatians 3.20 Two notes also and I quote The climax of the response of Jesus to his testing is to cite Deuteronomy 6 verse 13 You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve Matthew 4 verse 10 There the Greek word is trevin, to do service to deity Equally striking is the answer of Jesus to the rich man, no one is good but God alone. Mark 10 verse 18 from Peter Toon's book, Our Triune God. Toon speaks of quote, the simple task of noticing the clear commitment to monotheism within the New Testament. He admits that, and I quote, everywhere in the New Testament, the truth of the monotheistic formula is taken for granted. God is one, is or theos in Greek. In fact, God is, quote, the only true God, John 17, 3. He is the only God, our Savior, Jude 25, and the only wise God, Romans 16, verse 27. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory for ever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 1 17. End of quotation from Peter Toon's book, Our Triune God. Toon leaves us with the impression of complete contradiction. On the one hand, Jesus affirms the unitary monotheism of the Hebrew Bible. On the other hand, the apostles do not bat an eyelid at introducing a quote, mutation in monotheism, a quote, redefinition of Jewish monotheistic devotion by a group that has to be seen as a movement within Jewish tradition of the early first century. And that quotation is from Peter Toon's book, quoting Larry Hurtado in his book, One God, one Lord, early Christian devotion and ancient Jewish monotheism. This expansion, so-called, or alteration of the creed of Jesus was unknown to Mark, writing late in the New Testament period, when, with the other Synoptic Gospels, Jesus is presented as adhering strongly to the unitary monotheism of his heritage which he calls the most important proposition of all. We must therefore register a protest against Toon's assertion that, quote, Jesus was given the devotional attention which was reserved only for God himself in the Jewish tradition. If by that is meant that Jesus was thought to be God, co-equal in every sense with the Father. Toon's attempt to justify from the New Testament a, quote, major mutation of the Jewish-Christian definition of God, promoted by Jesus himself, must be judged a failure. It is gallant but flawed. No redefinition of the express confession of Jesus is permissible for Christians. There is no new binatarian understanding of God in the Bible. Toon's argument progresses by almost unnoticeable stages. He has to arrive at what he thinks of as orthodoxy, but it is not the orthodoxy of Jesus. He thinks he has found in the New Testament, quote, a new form of Christian monotheism. He believes that there is a general Trinitarian consciousness in the pages of the New Testament, out of which there arises an implicit Trinitarianism, as are the words of Peter Toon. Toon hopes to convince us, with Michael Ramsay, Archbishop of Canterbury, that, quote, the first Christians began with the monotheism of Israel, and without abandoning that monotheism, were led by the impact of Jesus upon them to worship Jesus as divine. But Jesus, authorized no such, quote, development. One cannot worship God as one and also as three and then claim that one has not tampered with the bedrock instruction of Jesus and the Bible. Amazingly, Toon has to admit that the New Testament Christians did not speak of Theos as a trinity, because for them, Theos was, with a few exceptions, always the Father. End of quotation from Peter Toon. This, of course, concedes the whole case for unitary monotheism. But Toon appears entirely conflicted. He goes on to cite B.B. B. Warfield, who confidently refers to quote, the simplicity and assurance with which the New Testament writers speak of God as a Trinity. The whole book is Trinitarian to the core. The Trinity is not so much inculcated as presupposed. Quotation is from B.B. Warfield. Toon seems uneasy with Warfield here. He adds that, quote, Warfield does not mean that the ecclesiastical dogma of the Holy Trinity is found in the New Testament. Toon, quote, would prefer to speak of a vision or a conviction or a consciousness of the Trinity. But notice that Toon is now moved by almost imperceptible steps from, quote, a general Trinitarian consciousness, an implicit Trinitarianism, to, quote, a consciousness of the Trinity. Remarkable is the advance from the lowercase t to the capitalized Trinity. The whole exercise I suggest is invalid. Jesus is not worshiped as God in the New Testament and calling him Lord is not the same as calling him God. Jesus founded his church on the proposition that he is the Messiah, not God. Astonishingly, Toon provides no discussion of the vital distinction between the two Lords in Psalm 110.1. Two and in Scripture Index contains no reference to Psalm 110.1, though a single reference to Psalm 110 appears in parentheses without comment on page 118. The text in Psalm 110.1, more than any other biblical verse, provides the right framework for discussing the relationship between the one Lord God and the one Lord Jesus Messiah. Warfield's comment that the Trinity is, quote, presupposed in the New Testament is in fact true of the presupposition which these scholars bring to the pages of the Bible. It is they who are equipped with the presupposition that the Trinity is a New Testament doctrine and must somehow be extorted from the monotheism of Jesus. Toon is careful to point out that, quote, Jesus did not exist before he was conceived, but, quote, the Son of God existed before Mary existed. When Toon explains that, quote, the pre-existing Son of God took human nature in Mary's womb, he's describing post-biblical dogma, not what Luke and Gabriel report. Thun urges us to believe that in Luke one thirty five, we have the incarnation of the Son of the Most High, who is the Son of God. This becoming man, says Thun, is because of the unique presence and action of the Spirit. But Gabriel presented no such doctrine. The Son of God is the direct result of the divine begetting of the Son. In Mary, for this reason, precisely, he will be called the Son of god Luke one verse thirty five There is no pre-existing Son of God as distinct from Jesus who did not pre-exist. Toon admits that Jesus did not pre-exist, but he believes that the Son of God did to posit a pre-existing Son of God who is not yet Jesus is to present us with two persons. One eternal and the other beginning or begotten as a human being. On this scheme, the promised son of David and of God has been ousted by a pre-existing son who is not traceable to the line of David and is not, therefore, the Messiah. Honoring the Messiah as God's agent. In the Old Testament, we find suitable reverence offered to the Messiah, who is seen in vision as the Son of Man. Palach, the Hebrew verb, is used in Biblical Aramaic. Palach is used in Biblical Aramaic generally for divine service, but it is applied to saints in Daniel 7, verse 27, and to the Messiah in Daniel 7, verse 14. The Septuagint chooses Latrevo, worship, in seven fourteen, but Theodosian, another Greek version of the Old Testament, uses the verb dolevo, a neutral word meaning to serve. The word Latrevo, used in the Greek New Testament only of divine service, is never applied to Jesus. Jesus was not worshipped as God. Only the Father is said to be worshipped as receiving the activity described by the Greek word La Trevo. Arthur Wainwright notes that quote there is no instance of La to do religious service to which has Christ as its object. That's from Arthur Wainwright's book The Trinity in the New Testament. We noted that in one version of the Septuagint, la trevo is used of the Messiah in Daniel 7.14. However, the Son of Man in that vision incorporates the saints to whom the kingdom of God will be given. It is impossible to conclude from the single use of la trevo here that Jesus is God. Referring to service of the Son of Man in 7.27 of Daniel, Theodosian's Dulevo and the Septuagint's Pitho allow for no dogmatic statements about the status of the Messiah in Daniel. So the Aramaic does not distinguish divine from human service with Balach. Or one could say that saints and Jesus receive divine worship, in which case the words are ambiguous as to the object. The word worship by itself does not tell you anything for certain about the status of the one receiving it. The worship of Jesus in the book of Revelation certainly points, as does the whole New Testament, to the supreme elevation of the man Messiah to the right hand of the Father. Doxologies are sung to Jesus. He sits with God on God's throne. Songs are sung in praise of the Messiah, but the word worship of deity, la trevo, is reserved for the Father. Revelation 22, verse 3, is apparently no exception, since, as the translator's translation observes in its notes, quote John is writing, A little loosely. If a translation is to be more explicit, the main reference in the paragraph is to God. See verse 4. That's the translator's translation prepared by New Testament scholars and missionary linguists, British and foreign Bible Society. The only other use of la trevo in Revelation is found in chapter 7 verse 15, where God is the object. It should be carefully noted that the broader term for worship, proskineo, is offered also to glorified saints in Revelation 3 verse 9. And this does not lead us to believe that they are God. The identity of Jesus is emphasized at the end of the book of Revelation. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright morning star. Revelation 22, verse 16. The word root here means descendant. A plant grows upwards and downwards. The shoot is derived from the ancestor, in this case, David. Jesus, in the last verses of the New Testament, is presented as throughout the New Testament, and from its beginning words, Matthew 1, verse 1, As the promised Messiah of the tribe of Judah and son of David. His genealogy is quote, traced to Judah, Hebrews 7 14. That in all its messianic simplicity is the single identity of the Jesus of history, now risen and ascended and coming again. Paul's gospel contain the same central information that Jesus is, quote, the seed of David, 2 Timothy 2 verse 8. There are no New Testament grounds for disturbing the unitary monotheism of Jesus and the Bible. The argument that because Jesus is thanked or appealed to, for example, in John 14, 14, Jesus says, If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it." The pronoun I strongly suggests that a request can be made to Jesus. So the argument that because Jesus is thanked or appealed to or sung to, or that he walks on water, he must be part of the eternal Godhead is false. The task of the investigator of the question about God and Jesus is not to start with a presupposition about what is possible for a human being. Walking on water does not prove that Jesus is God. Peter was invited to do what Jesus did. What if God ordains homage and reverence for his unique human son? What if angels are commanded to, quote, worship the human Jesus in Revelation 5, verse 9? We cannot rush to the conclusion that no man is worthy of such honor. God is the one who decides who is fit to die for the sins of mankind, to be our high priest, and to receive the praise of the church and of angels. Such is the elevation of Jesus by God himself that the son is honored alongside his father. The sponsor is honoured in his special agent. This does not, however, make the son co-equal with the uncreated God. God the Father remains the one of whom it is said in both Testaments, you alone are holy. Revelation 15, verse 4. Another quotation, you alone are God. Psalm 86, verse 10. Jewish biblical monotheism is still very much intact. Hymns are sung in honor of Jesus, Revelation 5, verse 9 and 12. Jesus is equipped like God to, quote, search the hearts and minds, Revelation two twenty three. 23, compare with that Psalm 7, verse 9. Yet, He was the mortal human being, the, quote, Lamb who died. And such a person cannot, by definition, be the one immortal God of all creation. Jesus enjoys divine titles conferred on him. He, like the Father, is the ultimate, quote, the Alpha and Omega of God's great plan quote, the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12, verse 2. But this does not turn God into two or three persons. Jesus, not God, is the, quote, Alpha and Omega who died. Revelation 1, verse 17. God cannot die. 1 Timothy 6, verse 16. The comment of the writer on Christ and Christology in the Dictionary of the Apostolic Church, C. Anderson Scott is instructive. The writer of Revelation carries the equating of Christ with God to the furthest point, short of making them eternally equal. Christ is still, quote, the beginning of the creation of God, Revelation 3.14, by which is probably to be understood, compare Colossians 1.18, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, also Colossians 1 15, that he himself was part of the creation. With that fine statement, the learned writer recovers the Messiah Jesus for the human race. He is the first to have achieved immortality and is thus the inspiring model for us all. If he were God, his achievement would be reduced to some sort of charade. It is the same professor whose eyes were open to the supreme problems involved in finding the Trinity in the New Testament. Quote, St. Paul had no doctrine of the Trinity, he declared with confidence. We are much encouraged in our quest for the truth about the identity of Jesus by Francis Young, Wrote, if we avoid reading the New Testament with spectacles coloured by later dogma, we find emerging a Christological picture, or rather pictures, quite different from later orthodoxy. If we look at the contemporary environment, we discern not only the cultural factors which led the fathers to the dogmatic position from which the New Testament has traditionally been interpreted, but also the inherent difficulties of their theological construction. That's from John Hicks, The Myth of God Incarnate. A return to a biblical identity of Jesus will be strongly encouraged when the word worship is properly examined. There is, as we have seen, and ambiguity in the word worship. Playing on this, modern translations invite readers to think that Jesus is God because he is, quote, worshipped. A warning appeared in Hastings' celebrated dictionary of the Bible in the article, quote, Worship in the New Testament. Some indefiniteness attaches to this subject, partly owing to to the two senses in which the Greek word proskineo is used, and partly owing to the ambiguous usage of the word Kyrios, or Lord. The writer then referred to a Bampton lecture in which the speaker had claimed proof of the deity of Jesus from various occasions when Jesus was, quote, worshiped. But it cannot be proved that in any of these cases, more than an act of homage and humble obeisance is intended. Josephus used the word proskineo of the high priests. The physical act of prostration in profound humility as rendering great honor is all that can be meant. The homage offered to Christ would vary in its significance from the simple prostration of the leper before the great healer to the adoration of Mary Magdalene and Thomas in presence of the Risen Christ, its significance depending wholly on the idea of his nature that had been attained, and therefore not to be determined by the mere statements of the outward acts which we find in the Gospels. That's from the Hastings Dictionary of the Bible. This is profoundly true and should put an end to all assertions that Jesus is God himself because he is, quote, worshipped. That the Messiah is worthy of the praise of angels is clear. That the Father is, in Jesus' words, quote, the only one who is truly God, John seventeen three, or the only God, John five forty four. 44 or the one who is alone, holy, John fifteen four, remains as a barrier against any disturbance of the creed professed by Jesus himself. The Amazing Achievement of the Human Son of God The status of Jesus is unique. His elevation to the right hand of God marks a brand new departure in the history of the world god has promoted his firstborn son to immortality an immortality which would be a laughable sham if he had had it in eternity what then would he have gained and what would have happened to the trinity if such a thing existed if three co-equal persons eventually added to themselves a, quote, human nature. The, quote, shape of God would have been permanently altered. The simplicity of the messianic story presented in Scripture has been turned into a nightmare of complexity by orthodox dogma. That shift of the identity of God to so-called Trinitarian monotheism has been encouraged by the unconsidered meaning of the word worship in scripture. It is more important to examine God's own story as he prepared to bring his unique son onto the scene of history. Quote, when he brought the firstborn into the world, Hebrews 1 verse 6. Again, quoting from scripture, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son coming into existence from a woman. Galatians 4, verse 4. Note here the deliberate and unusual use of yinome to come into existence here and in Romans 1, verse 3, to express the beginning of existence, not just birth. Compare the yenesis or Genesis, of Jesus in Matthew 1, verse 18, and note that the normal word to express birth is yenao. See, for example, Job 14, verse 1, and 25, verse 4. The whole point of the biblical story is that the Son of God must be a biological descendant of Eve, Abraham, and David. He must be truly a Jew by lineage. He must be an Israelite. If suddenly a brand new non-human personage from heaven is inserted into the storyline, the whole of the divine plan is derailed and confused. The promise of the Savior's continuous lineage from Abraham and David becomes impossible. The Saviour is no longer essentially human. The Messiah has been replaced by a strange being arriving from another world. From this unmessianic Messiah, the Church needs to retreat. Jesus' true identity is that He is the Lord's Messiah. Luke 2:26, the Holy One of God. John 6:69. 6, holy one is the equivalent to the new testament word saint the title given to christians saints or holy ones the messianic title holy one of god is applied to samson in the septuagint of judges 13 verse 7 a person so described is one set apart consecrated by god to be god's quote anointed Indicates a special relationship between Jesus and God. Christians, as well as the patriarchs, are God's anointed. Quote, Do not touch my Messiahs, do my prophets no harm. That's in Psalm 105, verse 15. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is god second corinthians 1 verse 21 the title son of god in the messianic sense is the biblically quote orthodox definition of who jesus is rooted in the hebrew bible's royal title psalm 2 verse 7 even the centurion calls the crucified one son of god Mark 15, verse 39. Jesus affirmed his own identity when asked by the Sanhedrin. He said he was the Messiah, Son of God. Mark 14, verses 61 to 64. The same combination of Son of God and Messiah occurs in Paul's reference to the Gospel, just as in Mark's opening definition in Mark Chapter 1, verse 1. At the beginning of Romans, in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1, Jesus was born God's Son. Romans 1, verse 3. And equally the descendant of David. Romans 1, verse 3. And his status as Son of God was declared with power by his resurrection. Romans 1, verse 4. At the most fundamental level, and as the bedrock of New Testament revelation, he is the son of David, properly addressed as lowercase Lord, Messiah, Matthew 15, verses 22, and chapter 20, verse 31.